This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Total Saints Podcast, where we're celebrating our 50th episode this time around. Steve is away watching England stuff Sri Lanka at the moment, but the ever-reliable Adam Leach is here, fresh from another turbulent week down at St Mary's. Adam, they say there's never a dull day in Southampton. That's proven the case this week, really, isn't it, mate? It's been a busy week, yeah. yeah. Certainly the end of the week, it's been really busy, yeah. So that's like another chapter for the book, almost. So much seems to have happened <laughs> in, a, in the space of a few days. It's been pretty turbulent, um, that's for sure, but... That kind of just feels the way of the club at the moment, doesn't it? It seems to be, uh, you know, non-stop uh, action at the moment. Unfortunately, it's, the momentum all feels like it's going the wrong way. But nonetheless, it's, uh, yeah, it's never a dull moment, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I imagine there's been, what, smoke coming off the keyboard this week? <laughs> there were, well, you can imagine... The end of your there, fingers have disappeared. <laughs> yeah. There were, well, there was, obviously, Thursday morning when I began to hear what was going on with Les Reed. Obviously, it was... um kind of right okay panic stations this is going to be big news um mm. you're then juggling this kind of weird balance where you're kind of trying to get the news out there but i think part of our job as the echo the one thing that, that we do that nowhere else can do is uh or, or, or will do realistically is um to actually try and add some like balance and perspective and, and reflection and, and analysis and comment opinion, whatever you want to call it yeah. on the events that are going on rather than just, this is the news because people can get the news from anywhere yeah. really. So uh, it's to try and offer something a bit different. So on one hand, I'm sort of thinking, right, I've got to deal with the news. I've got to get all my stuff done and out there. So, so it's there also trying to then think, right, I've got to step back and really quickly provide some sort of, balance and analysis of, of what is taking place and it's trying to do those two things at the same time that's kind of quite challenging yeah so definitely the keyboard has been red hot and then obviously <laughs> uh, an audience with ralph on friday and 
um, yeah, there's always plenty of typing to do after a, a big interview with Ralph. Uh, <laughs> and then again. So, yeah, quiet week. Yeah, no, indeed. And our 50th episode, Adam, can you believe it? We've made it this far. Your immediate reaction to the, uh, well, I mean, the pure excitement of that, I imagine. Well, it's great, isn't it? I'm I'm really um, pleased and proud of what we've done. I mean, it's all uh, you have to take the majority of the credit. I mean, you've oh, done most of the hard work, and it was it was all your idea and and uh, all that. Yeah, I'm just I'm just building you up. Here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I'm really proud. It's grown so much, and and yeah, you know, when we started, I think we both thought, well, is anybody really going to listen to this? Mm. And and to see the audience numbers grow and grow and grow, and 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 things like that, and then you know to have somebody have the faith to sponsor us and. Yep. And the amount of feedback we get, I mean, it, I think it's a, a really great. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. It does feel like we've come a long way. I, I dread to think of the amount of late nights that we've spent A, recording, and then B, me editing about the uh, infamous throwing away leads and things like that. But yeah, I, I was having a quick click yesterday, so we're up to over 43,000 listens now combined since uh, episode one, um, from New Zealand to Nepal to Chad to Brazil, so right across the world. So uh, as Adam mentions, um, it's been uh, you know really grateful for how far and widespread it's gone. And we thought we'd keep it uh, a bit more traditional with Steve away, rather than just asking someone else to come on and give an opinion uh, that we just just keep it the two of us a bit like old times sake Adam maybe but uh, yeah and sort of celebrate we, um, we, we've we been discussing and working haven't we over the last couple of weeks you are a big podcast advocate and I know you're uh, a patron of a podcast I believe and so we thought as part of our 50th episode we'd open ourselves up onto Patreon so that anyone that is listening around the world could become a, a patron of Total Saints podcast if they wanted to I'm not saying it was your idea and or that you specifically drove it bearing in mind your relationship with the Daily Echo Adam but you know a bit more about Patreon than maybe I do so just for people that's listening give us a bit of a brief overview about that and what we've done yeah i mean we've we've had quite a lot of people contact us haven't we over the over the last especially over the last nine months um since the pod's been more established saying is there any way we can contribute or would you consider making this a subscription service and and things like that but i mean i think i I speak for both of us when our view has always been that football's expensive enough and we you know this is a a fun this is a hobby for us and we're not looking to make money out of it or anything like that so we want it accessible for everybody but that said podcasting is not free you know this venture of ours has got to 50 episodes has cost us personally it's cost us money hasn't it so obviously we're delighted and very proud that happy hot tubs have sponsored us and helped towards that but really i'm i'm like i said i'm i listen to a lot of podcasts and i'm a patron of several podcasts that i really like and and all that means is that i contribute to them running the podcast basically Mm. so i just give them a bit of money so basically patreon is i think is the easiest way of of all the ones that i've signed up they're the world's biggest community for things like this so they're an american company you pay in dollars and what we've set up is the ability uh to be able to pay per episode if people wish i've signed up for other ones as well where i pay monthly but i don't like that so much because i feel like well if i if so they don't record as many pods then you're Mm. still paying for them as whereas this you only pay for the ones you want and you can stop at any time as well and so it's just really if people feel like they want to then they can and if not we we remain committed to giving this away for free so people are more than welcome to continue to listen for free but if people want to support us um support the ongoing podcast then this is just a way to do it really more than welcome yeah very much so and finally on that then we we, uh we've got three tiers haven't we so there's three tiers of uh, how you can become a patron and uh again a lot of work has gone into sort of trying to make those as attractive as uh, we can do particularly in uh, terms of the names adam yeah that's right well we've named them all after former saints players obviously um as you would do so i think what we did is we set them at the, the minimum bar for patreon which is two dollars 
uh, American dollars, obviously, per episode. And that's our Klaus Lundig volunteer. Yep. Uh, we then go to $5, which is the Ricky Lambert tier. And no prizes for guessing $10, obviously. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with Matt Letizier. Yeah, obviously. Obviously, <laughs> Matt Letizier. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, if anybody's interested, it's patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Total Saints pod. And all the information you need there, basically Patreon, they deal with everything. It's not, you know, so we don't have to worry about it. They obviously take a small commission for their troubles and then the podcast gets the rest. And yeah, I think we'll, we'll wait and see how it goes. If, yeah. if nobody signs up, that's absolutely fine. We're not going to be uh, shutting down the podcast if that happens. But if people do, then we also, you know, if it goes really well, then we, we fully want to be like saints and reinvesting the money, don't we? Back <laughs> into the podcast. We want to buy a new equipment maybe some upgraded hosting and then potentially competitions giveaways things like that so yeah it would be great if people want to support and they can feel they can afford to and if they can't fair enough as well absolutely and uh, also there's the opportunity i think in uh, the matt letizier um, tier that if you uh, do uh, commit to that as a patron then we'll get you on the podcast to have a chat about saints as well so just finally on this as adam says it's something we just wanted to do to sort of help celebrate the uh, 50th episode we're not expecting thousands and thousands of dollars but if anyone out there is interested in supporting the podcast as well then we'd obviously be delighted and adam had uh, rightly said there that we'll uh, put all of the uh, money generated back into the podcast to try and make it as uh, good as we can from a production point of view but uh, moving on as mentioned there's uh, been an awful lot going on this week uh, on the south coast which we'll reflect on with adam the exit of vice chairman of football les reed on thursday the following day ralph kruger's big interview with adam and the following day after that the 1-1 draw with watford in the premier league arguably more important than anything we've mentioned so far is the 100th anniversary of the end of world war one which ended on the 11th of uh, november 1918 exactly 100 years at uh, day of recording so quite proud that we're uh, able to share that moment uh, 100 years ago today we'll uh, have the help of will Dorr who's the founder of Saints Archive this week to look at Total Recall with us and the hope goes some way to paying our respects to the ex-Saints who fell in the Great War and the memories of all of us associated with our beloved city of Southampton. This is Total Saints podcast episode 50 in association with saintsworld.co.uk and saintsarchive.com now on Patreon and also sponsored by happyhottubs.co.uk. HappyHotTubs.co.uk At Happy Hot Tubs we specialise in hot tubs. It's all we've done for 35 years. So if you're thinking about a hot tub and want to speak to someone, then we're the place for honest, clear and friendly advice. Plus, right now we have 0% available on our hot tubs, meaning you can spread the cost in easy payments. You deserve happy. Come and get it at Happy Hot Tubs. Conditions apply. Visit HappyHotTubs.co.uk HappyHotTubs.co.uk 0% excludes free throw range. After what seemed a heck of a long time since the bruising and embarrassing defeat at Manchester City, Saints were back in Premier League action at St Mary's this past weekend, drawing 1-1 with Watford. So I suppose, Adam, we you know, can talk about the referee in a moment. You know, I certainly don't uh, think we'd get away without mentioning it, but your reflection on the game as a whole, what could have been and what could have been not, maybe? Well, I wrote in my verdict piece, an unpredictable week with an all-too-predictable ending. <laughs> Very much <laughs> Which, so, yeah. Uh, you, you just felt it was going to happen, really, sat there at 1-0, and the longer it went at 1 even at half-time, we were, we were saying in the press room to each other, um, I was chatting to Dave Merrington, and we were saying, yeah, they're playing well, You don't really, but you don't want this to be 1-0 with, with half an hour to go, because you can kind of sense the retreat that will potentially take place. Obviously, it turned out that the second half was more unpredictable in some regards, with mm. regards uh, particularly the, the refereeing, yeah. where you can't help but laugh when you say the refereeing, but I'm sure we'll come back to that. But yeah, <laughs> then 
Uh, late goal that went in, another equaliser, another day without a St Mary's win. It's obviously going to be a full calendar year with just the one league win at St Mary's by the time they next play yep. there. Wow, I mean, uh, I also wrote really that the, the home form now is crisis territory, really, um, because you don't use the word crisis and people in football are always like, oh, journalists are so quick to say a club's in crisis, etc., etc. Well, I think that we've we've held on long enough now that yeah. I think we can begin to say that this is a crisis. Um, we can talk about, yeah, the odd like refereeing decision that's gone against them, the odd moment of bad luck, et cetera, et cetera. But this is now too ingrained a trend yep. to to just be written off on a whole variety of one off excuses. This is a, a very, very deep rooted, uh, clearly and serious problem and i don't know about you but i don't know how how you change it how you address it really no we've spoken haven't we now that you look at the run into sort of next year the games that are coming up at home you know we'd spoken previously about newcastle being the game they were going to win or Watford going to be the, the the home game they were going to win the problem we got now is the run to the new year as i say looks pretty treacherous as well so it, it looks like the next home win could be weeks or months away really well it does feel like that it really does and i think at the moment that when you look at the table, you go, okay, only 12 games. And in isolation, if you if you didn't know anything about Saints' fixture list, for example, you would go, okay, well, it's not been a great start, but kind of no need for any desperate panic at this stage. It's still fairly early days. Yeah. But when you see what's gone before and you look what's to come, I think that the concern, major concern for me now and everybody connected with the club has to be where they'll be on, say, January the 2nd once they've played mm-hmm. that Chelsea game. Because when we come back from this break... Obviously, as we know, there's just a fixture pile up basically for five or six weeks until we get through to that that period. And, and the league will really take shape. You'll be way further than was Chelsea, like 21 games in, something yeah. like that. So well over halfway through, there's a, you know, a lot of very difficult games. And it's beginning to get that feeling that the, the games that you look at in that period, as you, you would define as more winnable, uh, I think it's uh, Fulham away. Cardiff away, Huddersfield away, mm. all, all teams around them, but away from home. And uh, I think West Ham maybe at St Mary's. Yeah, I'm, not, right. I'm not sure. I think they're the other one. Yeah, that's right. 27th and, December. Yeah. So barring, uh, just working on the assumption for a moment, the Saints don't do something very surprising and pick up, let's say, two wins or something against top six teams that they're playing. It's just assume that that doesn't happen because very few teams are doing that at the moment. I mean, they're running away, aren't they, the top yeah, six? Yeah. So Certainly not us. Um, no, well, no, no, they're definitely, def- well, I think the whole league's feeling like that this year, aren't they? Everybody's getting pretty bloody noses from that lot. So assuming they don't do that, I mean, the, the margins to me look pretty thin in terms of, you know, avoiding being in the bottom three come that January the 2nd, because you're, the chances are you're looking at having to win all four of those games yep. to avoid being in the bottom three with 21 games gone more than half the season. And that is... That's a big ask because that is a very fine margin. As I said, if you can do something surprising, then fine. But I find that pretty concerning as looking ahead as much as where they are now. Mm. Back to the uh, the game then. The Northern have seen plenty of away goals this season, Adam. Finally, a first half goal. Finally, something for them to cheer. We've spoken about Gabby Adini's goal scoring record. 391 days, I think it was, since his last St Mary's goal. So worth the wait in the end. Well, yeah, it was. I mean, it was good to... <laughs> Good to see him scoring again, wasn't it? I mean, it was um, interesting that Hugh said afterwards he thinks that, that that sort of position that he played, a 4-2-3-1 with Gabbiadini wide, 
yeah. Well, you know, out on the wing effectively and coming inside is his best position, which was which was interesting because I did think when Ings obviously was coming off, I thought, oh, I wonder if he'll slip Gabbiadini up through the middle and then bring on maybe Elianusi um, out on that right-hand side. But obviously he brought on Austin and kept Gabbiadini there and he was a real threat. I mean, it was a, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I was certainly surprised he was playing, to be honest, having failed to make the bench against Man City suddenly in the team. Um, I know Shane Long obviously dropped out through injury uh, on Friday, but even so, it was, it was a bit of a shock. But I think that, I mean, you'll know more about this than me, but I think that the, the I certainly sense that the supporters are pleased to see him given a run. Yeah, I hope he'll get given a run. Absolutely, yeah. I think, um, you know, I think he's always been someone that the fans have looked on fondly. And uh, I think, again, you can understand maybe, and we've spoken about this before, maybe why he's not sort of up to Premier League speed because he's been in and out of the side. But I think all of us felt he put a, a good shift in yesterday. It was difficult conditions. He was tracking back. I mean, even their equaliser, he's throwing himself in front of it. And uh, I certainly felt that he, he went out there with a point to prove, didn't he? Yeah, he definitely looked like he had he had a point to prove. So I guess you could say maybe maybe the kind of management has has worked of Gabbiadini. Maybe he Mark Hughes felt he needed that a mm. uh, little shock to the system, as it were. Um, and it, obviously against Man City, it was unlikely to ever make a lot of a difference whether he was playing or not. To be completely honest, um, so maybe good management there. But yeah, it was good to see him back and and good to see a. Good to see a goal. <laughs> Whether we take where we can these days. Well, indeed, indeed. And look, I, I, I was trying to think of other positives. I kind of stopped there almost. But uh, I was just going to discuss Danny Ings. You mentioned there that he came off injured. I think it was announced afterwards, wasn't it, that he tweaked his hamstring in the warm-up. So my question was, did you sort of feel that Hughes thought it was must-win, we need to play him and risk it? Or was it a bit naive of the manager to sort of throw him out there and we potentially risk losing him? I don't know at time of recording how long he will be out, but potentially, you know, we're going to miss him for a few games now. Well, it's difficult. It's difficult because I, I, I would imagine had it had it been a different time, he, he might not have, have stuck him in. But given that they knew that there was a fortnight's break now, I guess there's more temptation to play him in the in the thought that well you know he he should be hopefully that'll be a bit of time to recover if it's not too bad and I mean it's easy to say what the manager should or shouldn't do in that situation even the medical stuff but to a certain degree you've got to listen to the player haven't you only he can actually truly know how he feels at that point in time it's just before the game starts there's no time to properly assess him there's obviously no time to let the injury settle and get it scanned and look at the results and see how, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to make a snap judgment. And if the player says, as Danny Ings obviously did yesterday, look, it just feels like a small twinge. I think I'm fine. Hmm. Let, let me give it a go. Then you kind of just got to listen to him, haven't you? And got to let him give it a go and hope that he is making the decision for the right reasons. I, you know, He's not going to let the team down, as it were, by trying to play even when he's not fit. But I don't think he's that kind of character. He obviously thought he could get out there and do a job um, and then pulled up. But at least he had the good sense when he realised it wasn't happening to to get off the pitch Mm. early. And so that obviously gives him maximum time for recovery. And I think, uh, you know, as you said, after the game, he was hopeful that it was you know just a few a bit of a strain effectively and nothing uh nothing untoward but i guess time will tell mm. before we go on to talk about mr hooper then the referee um i just wanted to get your opinion on cedric adam um someone that we really haven't spoken about for a, a little while i think myself and many other fans being quite frustrated with his lack of consistency over the last 12 18 months um certainly i know simon peach doesn't rate him and that probably tells you a lot but uh, again you know the, the goal yesterday how many i mean how many soft goals have we seen 
him concede uh, even at Man City last week trying to see the ball out of play and then yesterday for their equaliser he comes out sort of sideways on with his hands behind his back it hits his back leg and deflects over McCarthy for me it's just that frustration with him that there is no competition for that right back place at the moment so he knows he's going to be in the side whatever performance he puts in but I, I just thought it was interesting to pick up with you on what you've made of Cedric this season well I don't think he's having having a great time of it really but as you said there's no other option to be blunt and yeah. so he's going to play I mean even at, even at left back it's fairly similar as well I mean Matt Target you could turn around and say he's a genuine option but actually realistically Ryan Bertrand is always going to be first pick in that position whenever he's fit so kind of even that's not an option but I think from Cedric's point of view obviously a lot of people say to me yeah how does this guy get linked with Barcelona and Chelsea all the time and things like that but actually I think the key is when you watch the big teams play actually he's got this kind of style that sort of suits Mm. their sort of play more than it suits playing for Southampton to be completely honest because he's a very attack-minded fullback he's quite pacey uh, he gets down the wing, he gets balls into the box, he joins in the attack. The problem is that he, uh, at a big club, when you're a fullback in that kind of mould, often you're not asked to do an awful lot of defending. Yep. Um, it's not saying you've got to worry too much about. At Saints, the fullback role is a lot of defending with a bit of attacking. And I think the problem that Cedric has is, is to be honest with you, the defensive side of his game is the weaker side of his game as mm. opposed to that sort of attacking fullback nature. And I think that's why the big clubs are interested, have been interested in him in the past because he has that uh, attacking string to his bow. But I think that's the problem that he suffers with at Saints is that the defensive side of his game is a bit softer. Obviously, number one, we've seen him exposed aerially a lot. Um, now, it's not his fault that, that he's obviously not that tall, but nonetheless, that has been a problem that Saints have had. And then number two, you know, I think occasionally, positionally, he just kind of just gets caught on the back foot a little bit. Yeah. Um, and that means he's not in quite the correct position to make a tackle or make a block or something like that. And I sense that that's the issue with him, really, is just that it's the, the, the strengths he's got are very admirable, but the weaknesses he's got are probably more exposed playing for Saints than they, they are for perhaps a, a bigger team. I think that's a really good point and uh, yeah, I think makes uh, a lot of sense. So moving on then, Mr Hooper, fourth Premier League game as a referee. You will have seen many, many referees in your time following Saints, Adam. We've spoken about quite a few of them, I think. Not necessarily his best game. I think that might be the worst refereeing performance I've seen in the Premier League. Ever? I can't. Well, I can't remember a worse one, certainly watching Saints. I mean, there maybe there has been one or two. There's been some terrible decisions. I mean, worse, worse than like a Roger East or a Lee Mason? Or, I mean, you could list all of them. Oh, really, it, but... was, it was horrific, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> because the thing was, we, we were saying, uh, you know, even I was saying like halfway through the first half, who is this referee? Because I've never really heard of him. I was like, he's absolutely dreadful. I mean, he was getting so much wrong. Mm. Uh, um, you couldn't accuse him of any bias. He was just hopeless. Um <laughs> Utterly, utterly hopeless. I mean, it was it was just terrible. The decisions he was giving for both teams were just were just laughable, to be honest. And then in a game that obviously had two very big calls, um, he managed to get both of those wrong just Mm. to top it all off as well. And obviously that was uh, what what took the the spotlight. I mean, for me, it was a penalty for Watford. And that would have been a second yellow card and Saints down to 10 men. Um, I don't think you could have not booked Bertrand if you'd have given the penalty. And clearly the goal that was disallowed that Charlie Austin hit um, that didn't go anywhere near Maya Yoshida clearly should have been a goal as well. I mean, two fairly massive decisions that that he's got wrong there. 
Um, but then so much else that he got wrong as well. I mean, it just to be honest with you, you just sense he was out of his depth. There's, That's there's, all I can yeah. assume. I mean, the thing is, there's been quite a few points made. It's only his fourth game as a Premier League referee. Again, we can joke about it to a certain extent now, but that could be the two points that essentially relegate us at the end of the season. A bit like the Watford handball last season, we weren't sure at that point. It always seems to be Watford. But as someone has said, you know, he was he wasn't going to get given the Manchester derby this weekend, was he? To to send him down to Southampton, Southampton, Watford, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of a meaningless game to many people out the way. Send him down there, we don't really care what happens. And you know, Mark Hughes has this reputation for constantly moaning about the referees. I know he's kind of mentioned that himself in the last 24 hours, but you can understand why. And I think we're all agreed it was a penalty, so there's no doubt there. I think they, they probably did even themselves out. But even then, Hughes was right. They, they hadn't scored the penalty, so they could easily have missed it, and we could have still won the game 2-1. So there is lots of ifs and buts, but it just sort of reiterates, I think, to me, that there's that inconsistency with referees, and we seem to sort of get the majority of the, the crap ones in the sort of lower half games of the Premier League. That's true. And, yeah, Mark Hughes made that point about they wouldn't give him the Manchester derby. And, and that is that is also a fair point. but. You can kind of understand why, realistically. I get the frustration, obviously. I get the frustration. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, but the frustration of, of you feeling like you're a guinea pig for referees, effectively, a testing ground for new referees. But every Premier League referee has to referee their first game somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they have to referee their second game somewhere. And they have to referee the first 10 games somewhere. Before then, really, you're going to put them into a ridiculously high-pressure environment. They kind the, of... Yeah, but the thing surely is... Surely they need to be broken in. You wouldn't go... Surely common sense would say if you've got a referee who's coming up from the championship, they've only had a couple of games, you wouldn't give them the Manchester derby, would you? I mean, I no, no, I, but I, I mean, I think my point is, and, and I, I look, don't get me wrong, I, I totally agree, but I think my point is, you know, there's as much pressure on Saints, and I, I was watching goals on Sunday this morning with Jermaine Pennant, and uh, you know, he was actually for for someone who has a reputation for being a bit of a moron, he was actually talking very intelligently, and this is a league, you know, that has millions, and millions of pounds in it. Saints are a club like any other club that are a business, you know, that could be the decisions that send them down at the end of the season so there's as much pressure on Saints as one of the 20 Premier League teams as there is Man City trying to win the league no and I completely I completely understand that but I still think from a logical point of view that realistically that when referees are coming up from the championships they are not going to get massive ridiculous high profile matches I agree with like that. that straight away so I mean who what other games are they going to referees like well should we send them to Newcastle instead or should we send them to Burnley or, or you know because they're playing Brighton or somebody like that I mean it's kind yeah. of all the same and I, I get I get that it that that game Saints Watford means as much to Southampton and Watford as a Manchester derby does to Manchester United and Manchester City yeah I, I, I get that but also I think the common sense part of you has to say well you know the, the only other way to realistically talk about doing this is to go we're going to put all the referees in a hat and we're just going to draw them out randomly. Oh, for that each would be game. fun. We should do that. Uh, we that, should that's do that. The, but that's the only way, other way you can oh, do it, because otherwise it's always going to be a choice. Somebody's got to make a choice as to who goes where, and therefore you're going to apply logic to that decision, and you're going to turn around and you're going to go, this guy's only had a few games. What are the games on this weekend? Saints would be on the shortlist. He could easily have ended up somewhere else, couldn't he? Let's be honest. And there were other games of that ilk, but it's just that Southampton Watford got him this weekend. We haven't had him in his first three games, so he's been <laughs> elsewhere for those, hasn't he? Well, so, yeah, and I question um, whether he'll get a fifth. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, but I guess my view is they're either ready for the Premier League or they're not. 
Look, moving on, Charlie Austin then. We criticised him a few weeks ago for his tweet after the Bournemouth game where he seemed to imply that Saints fans needed to get behind him. He came out after the game yesterday. I mean, he was pretty much still sweat beading from his brow and all those sort of things and uh, was very passionately spoke about the goal being disallowed. I think you can understand his frustration, can't you? I think you can. And to be honest with you, I don't honestly think he said an awful lot wrong because I, I would hope he doesn't get an FA charge for that. I mean, it was a bit... Yeah. You could say it's a bit overenthusiastic, but he never questioned the integrity of the officials. He just said, you know, what everybody was thinking. They need help. They need VAR. It was a, you know, clearly didn't, it didn't uh, strike Yoshida. He clearly wasn't in the way. Um, The tone of, and the manner of which he said it was obviously very forthright, Mm. but what he said, the content of what he said, there was nothing wrong. And I I think that I, I really hope the FA don't come down on him for this because, Actually, I, I think that that is really going to start to take a lot of sting and a lot of character out of the game because you're just you're just sanitizing it and taking opinions out. You could ask it wouldn't be beyond the realms for the FA to say, look, you know, next time, could you take a deep breath before mm. you uh, before you get quite so animated post-match? But actually, the content of what he said, of, of what I've seen, I haven't seen it, all of it, but from what I've seen, there's not an awful lot wrong with it, I don't think. Have you seen the Park Life version, which has come out today? Yes, I have. It's uh, it's actually originated from a Saints fan, Ryan Butterworth, at RJ Butterworth 11. If you haven't heard it yet, here it is. There's been a lot of pressure on Mark Hughes after the uh, way that Leslie was removed from Saints Adam, which we'll come on to talk about in a bit. The stats after the Watford game don't make particularly um, pleasant reading for our time with him as manager. That's now 16 points from a possible 60 under him, an average of 0.8 a game. Across a 38-game season, my maths made that 30.4 points, which uh, I think will probably mean relegation. There's also three wins from 20 Premier League games, Adam, a 15% win rate. So where does that leave him now in terms of the pressure? I know you've obviously spoken to him. His body language, I thought, was quite interesting before the Watford game, the the news about Les Reed as well. Yeah, I got the impression in the pre-match press conference, which is obviously later in the, the same day that Reed had, Reed had officially gone, that even though she's kind of said a lot of the right things, that it wasn't necessarily a decision that he, he particularly agreed with. Yeah. One thing we, we do know is that Reed and, and Hughes uh, go back a long way. Um, and the Reed's presence at Southampton was uh, a big influence in uh, getting Hughes in. I think that because they knew each other and they had done for a long time, it was kind of quite a smooth and easy move and transition for Saints to make. Yep. Therefore, if you're Mark Hughes, if one of your chief supporters, um, who happens to be the person who basically decides whether you're in a job or not, goes, then you would feel a little more nervous, even if things were going fairly well with things going fairly badly for the football club, you're obviously going to start to feel very nervous, I would suggest. Yeah, I mean, I asked him, well, he was asked about his position after the game yesterday as well, um, the game against Watford in the press conference. And he was quite defiant and sort of said, look, you can see performances are, are getting better. The board go to pretty much every game. They see the performances. They know it's fine margins and we're close. And so I don't expect there to really be any problems to be honest, I don't expect there to be any problems in in the you know right now, but obviously Saints will have to uh, address things at some point, and they've already they've obviously got rid of Reed, 
it's going to be a long time to by the sounds of it till they get in somebody else in that role. Yep. Doesn't sound like there's going to be money to spend in January. I'm sure we'll cover that off later. Yep. But then the, you're left with the only change you could possibly make is the manager. Now, my personal opinion is what is the point of keep on changing the manager all the time? Um, it doesn't seem to me a, a great plan to just keep on change, chopping and changing managers every two minutes. Um, it certainly hasn't helped so far. So I don't really see any great value. Uh, people say to me about, oh, if Hughes went, oh, I turn around and say, well, who are you going to get? Who is going to touch this job at the moment that's got, that you would realistically want? You know, because you, you want a long-term appointment, especially if you're appointing in November, early December. You're not appointing in February where you're getting, you know, Big Sam or whatever to keep you up. You're, you're appointing now, so you're appointing long-term. So you want somebody good, somebody with ambition. Frankly, the way Saints are, nobody's going to touch that job that you would the, in that kind of mould, I don't think, at this point in time. You've also got the dual problem that without Les Reed, who's going to take the decision to sack Mark Hughes? Mm. Well, Ralph, who's going to take the decision to appoint the new manager? I mean, all these things, they're, they're, they're such big problems that I think the club requires some form of stability somewhere. Yep. It needs some stability beyond Ralph just being there, basically. Indeed. We'll uh, read out a few questions throughout the the pod. Um, thanks to everyone that sent them in. We'd uh, ask for some sort of reaction to the news about Les Reed, Ralph Kruger and uh, the Saints situation. So when we come on to talk about Les and Ralph in a bit, then uh, I think majority of them are the, uh, sort of geared towards that. Uh, we, we did have one in that probably I think relates to, to this situation just to discuss about Mark Hughes, Adam. And uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure of your own reaction to this but you know there's always rumors and conspiracy theories around and I even put out yesterday it was interesting that one day after Les Reed or two days after Les Reed leaves the club Yoshida who's good mates with Gao now suddenly gets a game and uh, at St. Foo Fighter said with Mr. Reed now put out to pasture will we see the manager given a free reign on picking the team I know there was a lot of people quite interested to see Gabbiadini back in the side yesterday Stuart Armstrong back in the side yesterday Yoshida back in the side yesterday I'm not saying that Les Reed was picking the team but uh, any sort of any rumors or, or can you nip them in the bud that there was really much interference from that department in the team i don't think there was much interference personally you know from from everything i've heard i don't i don't think there was and i honestly can't see mark hughes for one moment standing for somebody medically would you want to go up to mark hughes and tell him actually mark i don't like the way you're picking your team i'm going to give you a bit of advice i mean i wouldn't want to do that and I'm not sure Les would want to do that either. Yeah, I mean, the influence really from Les is on setting the culture for the footballing side of the operations, which employs a good couple of hundred people, you know, including obviously the high profile positions of first team manager and first team squad. And then all the way down through the people who are sorting out the under eights. That's his his role, his job. Obviously, there's a there's a much bigger role to play in handing those players to the manager now in terms of a group effectively signing the players um, and then giving them to the manager to manage and coach. But I don't think that extends to picking the team, to be honest with you. Bobby Stokes. Play. Here's Letizia. Well, 
Having undertaken our first total recall last episode, the feedback for which we've been very grateful, we're going to do it slightly differently this week. Before I explain more, you may have seen that during the week we announced a brand new partnership with the fabulous Saints Archive. I'm delighted to say that Saints Archive will help with researching and presenting our total recalls when we do them, and the founder of Saints Archive is making his TSB debut this episode. It's Will Dorr. Will, great to have you with us, and really looking forward to working together over the uh, months and years to come. Before we get down to sort of doing this week's poignant total recall, I think I could call it, I wondered if you could tell us briefly about Saints Archive, how it came along and what it does. Yeah, totally. Um, Thanks for inviting us along. Saints Archive started in January this year. It came about, as I've said to many people, I think before, under Pellegrino. I was getting a bit down in the dumps with the sort of football we were seeing, results not going our way. And I think you get into a a stage in your life when you like to reminisce as you get older. And I remembered games of the past that I enjoyed and, um, you know, got me involved in supporting Southampton Football Club. Uh, So I thought, I can't be the only one who's alone here. I'll set up a Facebook group and try and cheer up as many people and um it worked it really worked and um now we're close to 4,000 members um we had a meet up in september which uh, raised just shy of 500 pounds for the saints foundation brilliant yeah which is not huge money but it's every penny counts it all helps yeah and um it's just a place where we share video footage of great goals uh, not all necessarily from winning games just you know stuff that we enjoy photos um, there's a lot of memorabilia that gets shared on there because everyone's kept a program from 30, 40 years ago that's in mint condition. And we have them, um, I wouldn't say the strict rules, but they're just gentlemen code of conduct. We mm. don't really permit swearing. If people do fall out, I do like for them to, to apologise, draw a line in the sand and uh, leave it at that. And it's developed into a group where people get on. We're, we're, we're saints, we stick together. It's that, that fan base, uh, not falling out over petty things. So, um, yeah, it works. It just totally works. And with you guys uh, partnering up with us, I can see that I think we're going to have uh, many good few months and years ahead of us. Good stuff. And just before we move on then, Will, just for anyone that hasn't had the opportunity to, to come across it yet, where can you find Saints Archive online? Well, we've recently set up a website, saintsarchive.com, and that will give you a link through to our Twitter feed and to our Facebook group itself. Um, all applications are done on a referral, so if you apply for a request to join, you might not get into the club straight away, but providing the questions that are posed on the time of entering the group are answered correctly, you'll be allowed in. The saintsarchive.com website as well will feature sort of articles as well from anyone that's uh, got a good history of uh, supporting the Saints and just wants to write up. So you can approach me about that. I'm more than happy for people to do write on our blog. Yeah, it's, it's a good place to be, good fun. Definitely helped me reminisce with a few positive memories over the last uh, months. As, as I say, I think we, uh, we've all needed them. But um, on to this week's Total Recall. We'd normally be reminiscing uh, over previous games, but we're actually recording on the 11th of November 2018, which is, of course, exactly 100 years to the day since World War One ended, the Great War as it was known. So this Total Recall is going to acknowledge and remember some of the stories of Saints and their ex-players during that harrowing four years, three months and two weeks between the 28th of July 1914 and the 11th of November. November 1918. Will, before we talk Saints, I know you're a military man and have recently picked up an award of uh, your own, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I uh, got the uh, Lord Lieutenant Special Reservist Award for uh, Hampshire County. So, um, 
yeah, bit of pressure on my shoulders there. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, congratulations. And uh, I know Leon had done a good job of uh, shouting about it on the Saints archive, uh, hence how I saw it. And just, um, as I say, from a, a military point of view, and I think all of us, you know, Southampton uh, was well known for being involved in two world wars. So many of us will have connections to the war through families and things like that. How important is it that, you know, our generation and future generations remember some of the people that have died in our honour? I think the key thing to, to take away from it and the reason why I always believe that remembrance is an important thing is to try as a race, as a, a group of you know people to not make the same mistakes again. But there's still conflict going on. And I think whilst we remember the, you know, the losses and the many sacrifices of people just like us, working men and women, hopefully over time we'll, we'll stop the nonsense and uh, we'll get on along a lot better. Um, but when we talk about, obviously, the fallen saints and particularly anybody that served our country in the First World War, they were normal people. They went up to a conflict. It was horrendously difficult for them. It was horrific in many ways for the guys and, uh, that returned home. To remember is to not only to pay respects for their sacrifices, but also to pass a message on just for future generations. No, you're right. And in terms of this total recall, we want to sort of try and slight, slightly different, as I say, to some of them, but try and just focus on sort of Saints' impact in, in terms of World War One and Saints' connection with World War One, I guess. So renowned for being one of the largest wars in history, an estimated nine million combatants and seven million civilians lost their lives. Saints very much so were impacted during that time as well. There was actually um, 19 ex-Saints that died in the First World War, um, one in Belgium, 10 in France, one in Gaza, one in East Africa, one in Italy, two at sea, and then three back at home. Frederick Costello, known as Frank, was the uh, first um, Saints player to die in World War One. He was born in Birmingham but played 41 games for Saints as a forward between 1907 and 09, scoring 10 goals. He was a private in the British Army and actually died just five months into the war, killed in action in France and Flanders. Maybe the best-named ex-Saints was Cecil Christmas, who was born in Southampton. He only played two games for Saints as a centre-forward in 1912. He was a second lieutenant in the British Army, and he died of his wounds in the Battle of the Somme in October 1916. John Sibley was the last Saints to die, and he actually died two weeks after the war had officially ended via a form of pneumonia. And in terms of the most decorated Saints, Edward Bell is the one that seems to pop up. He was born in Gibraltar, but played four games for Saints as a forward in 1907-08. He was a captain in the British Army and died only eight months before the war ended in 1918. He was killed in action again at the Battle of the Somme. He was awarded the Military Cross and later, four months after he died, was also awarded a bar to his Military Cross. The citation for both, as reported by the London Gazette, read, For conspicuous gallantry during operations, finding himself in command of the battalion, he repelled a counter-attack with great determination. On another occasion, he rescued several men from a blown-in dugout. And in terms of the bar to his military cross, the citation read, For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, while holding a section of the front line, he located and supervised the formation of forward dumps of ammunition and material. He carried out the work in daylight close to the enemy, and often under very heavy shell and machine gun fire. So some ex-saints there who lost their lives that we can remember and uh, were connected to the club. But it's not all bad, Will. No, not at all. We've got Bert Shelley, uh, born in Romsey. Uh, served in India and Egypt during the First World War, having survived and returned home, signed for Saints in 1919, went on to make what was then a club record 448 performances, which is incredible, at the half-back, scored nine goals before eventually becoming a coach at the club in 1932. Also remembering the Saints of the First World War, the Daily Echo article by Gordon Simpson on November 2014, it reads... 
Outside of those who were tragically killed, arguably the biggest impact the war had on Saints came when a young sergeant was posted to rest camp in Norfolk in 1917. The Royal Engineer never played for Saints, but was a former Bolton Elite player. Whilst recuperating, he would meet and marry a young local woman before having a son together. In 1935, that lad would come to the attention of the Norwich manager, Tom Parker, who had been one of the Saints' finest ever fullbacks. Two years later, Parker would head back to the Dell as manager and take the sergeant's son with him. The sergeant? W.E. Bates. His son? Well, that was a certain individual named Ted. Ted Bates, of course, would go on to make 200 appearances for the Saints between 1937 and 53, scoring 63 goals as a forward. Served the club from 1955 to 73 as manager and then went on to become club director for another 20 years before becoming a club president taking his overall period with the club 66 years before his death in November 2003. Always remembered and always a saint. One of the uh, legends of Southampton Football Club. We haven't got any coverage of any games, unfortunately, because coverage in terms of what's available online uh, from that period was very, very, very limited due to technology. But uh, I did manage to find a couple of old tables, Will. There's good news and bad news, I guess. The, the final table before World War One started was 1914-1915. Uh, so this was the days when you used to get two points and Saints finished sixth in Southern League Division 1. They played 38 games, they had 43 points, 19 wins, 5 draws, 14 losses and in those days, incredibly unlike now, they scored 78 goals in 38 games. The first table and first league after World War 1 was uh, in 1919-1920 so Saints finished eighth in Southern League Division 1 that year, played 42 games, 44 points, 18 wins, 8 draws, 16 losses and they scored 72 goals again, so uh, successful in terms of goals in that period. The only bad news, Will, is that uh, whilst the war being over was good news and should be celebrated in terms of football returning, well, Saints finished 8th in Southern League Division 1. A certain team that play in blue just down the road actually won the league that season, so maybe it wasn't uh, too much to be celebrated in the end. But uh, before we finish up Total Recall, Will, have you got family links or family stories that you remember in terms of your family, Southampton and World War One? Yeah, I believe my stepmother's, I think it was either a father or a grandfather, served with the uh, British Army in World War One, and I believe he was killed, unfortunately, due to mustard gas. And uh, I think possibly an artillery strike as well, but information from that long ago is a bit sketchy, to say the least. Um, yeah. she, she's heavily into genealogy, so I'm sure one day she'll find out the true uh, information about that. But most of my family, one generation or another, has you know, either just served in the military or served in a war zone, so... Um, it's something that, uh, you know, we, we tend to keep getting involved with. I don't know why, but... <laughs> I sound to learn myself. It was interesting actually researching this and, uh, you know, speaking to my own father and uh, I managed to find out a couple of things that I maybe didn't know. But my great-granddad was Harold Walker, who lived in Totten, just by the Asdenel, uh, the roundabout there, for those that know it. He was 15 when he enlisted for the Royal Dorsets in World War One, and due to his desire to fight for his country, he actually lied about his age at the time of signing up. And he continued to do so until he died, which actually, uh, my dad said, made it quite problematic when he came to register his death. He lost two of his brothers, my great-granduncles at the Somme. George and Sydney listed on the Cenotaph in Southampton. Both are buried in military cemeteries in Belgium. So I'm incredibly proud to remember them and you know the ultimate sacrifice they gave in protecting our country and representing our city. Along with all the Southampton-born families involved, including Will and mine, we remember on this 100th anniversary of the end of World War One all of the ex-Saints players that fought and either survived or sadly perished. Our great city and football club is what it is today thanks to them and the sacrifices they made. That's been Total Recall, World War One, lest we forget, and we'll be back again with our next Total Recall soon.
Little Saints Podcast. Little Saints Podcast with Ben Stanfield, Adam Leach, and Steve Grant. Sponsored by HappyHotTubs.co.uk. Thanks to Will for joining us for the first TSP Saints Archive Total Recall, a very poignant one, I hope you'll all agree. I should just acknowledge the sources that helped in the research pulled together for that, The Daily Echo, Southampton Football Club, Wikipedia and www.footballandthefirstworldwar.org. Anyway, moving back to more present times, this week saw Saints Vice Chairman of Football, Les Reed, leave Saints after almost a decade at the club. I know you mentioned it earlier, Adam, about the uh, busyness that suddenly Thursday bought, but what was your immediate reaction when you heard the news? I wasn't entirely surprised, other than the timing seemed a little bit odd. Yeah. Well, I know I'd said in an earlier pod, one right at the start of the season, that it had surprised me that Les hadn't gone in the summer, because I'd heard a lot of sort of background noise, as it were, about that was on the cards over several months before the end of the season. And and as I think I said, Gal was at the final game against Man City and effectively opted for the status quo and stability when he saw the reaction of the supporters. Mm. I think if the supporters had have been a lot more hostile, I think that, that actually there would have been significant changes potentially in the summer. But I think his reading was that people were content and therefore we give it another go and we see how we get on. Actually, the announcement coming as it did and just before a game was a bit of a surprise in many ways, even though there'd started to be a few whispers and obviously it's hard to keep these things um, completely under wraps when, mm. when, when they're happening uh, for saints. So the timing was unusual. I mean, if I'm being very critical and I have written this, um, I still don't understand why it couldn't have been done in the summer. Mm. I, I think to do it now, unfortunately shows a, a real lack of long-term planning um, yeah. because what I don't understand from what Ralph said is that from his point of view, this is about a long term future of the club. This is more of a philosophy decision than a personal decision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, surely none of that has changed in 11 or 12 games. And then when I pressed Ralph on, um, well, well, why didn't you do it in the summer? It, the answer was, well, because it wouldn't be fair on one bad season. But this season started badly. So that makes it sound like it's based on results mm. rather than philosophy. So I don't really understand why now. In, in effect um yeah i'm glad you're not the only one well i get the decision to do it and probably the truth is i think it's probably a good decision but i don't uh, doing it now seems to me just bizarre hmm. you, you've spoken very honestly for a while about the reed situation at saints um you wrote a fantastic comment piece i think many people have read and uh, i know it's been well received after it had been announced on thursday talking about a lot of the situations, the Cumin situation, that sort of thing. In in terms of Reed himself, then you know you're obviously closer to the situation than many of us are as fans. But do you, I mean, do you think he got a bit stale? Do you think he got a bit complacent? Do you think he maybe became a bit un, untouchable? I mean, what what do you think it was that the sort of reasons that that maybe sort of alluded to the situation that happened, or, or do you think as you you know as you sort of alluded to there that maybe he's just become the full guy for a poor start to the season? I think probably that too much uh, emphasis was placed on Les Reed, in fairness. I think that that's the, the issue here from my perspective and that it's not probably healthy to have so much power over the key area of the football club in one place. Mm. Obviously, the person in that role is going to be critical to the success of the football club. That, that's obvious. So you're not going to get away from that. But under Nicola Cortese's leadership, Reed's role was was much more limited. It was much more. Um, yeah, of course, he was still involved in scouting. He was still involved in those other decisions. Of course, he was. But 
um, Nicola Cortese was more leading from the front. And then Les was kind of, as far as I understand it, more sort of giving guidance uh, along the way. Now, when Cortese left, Kruger and Lieber were obviously uh, very up front, especially Kruger obviously did the interviews and saying, look, I'm no football expert. I don't know much about this, nor does Katerina. We've got Les here. We're going to kind of leave it to him. And there's been that kind of hands off the football side attitude to a certain extent from everybody else ever since. And so Les has kind of been able to run things as he wanted. And therefore, he uh, ultimately takes the credit for good things. And he has taken the credit for the good things. And he also has to take uh, responsibility for the things that have gone wrong as well. But I don't think going forward, Saints will make the mistake of putting so much effectively unchecked power in one place, effectively saying to one person, we're just going to leave you to to do all of that. Mm. When in reality, all of that is pretty much what makes the world go around for Southampton Football Club. And, And to be honest, the other stuff's of, you know, of small relevance compared to what the first team are doing. So I ultimately think that's that was the problem. Um, because once you do that and you have one person doing that, then you're on their whims all the time, aren't you? You're on their what they think is right all the time and everybody can make a mistake or two. And, and you know, you can you can have a blueprint for the way you want to do things. Uh, when we look at players, Saints have obviously beefed up their squad, but they've kind of shied away from making what you would call any star signings. Yeah, game changers, for example. Yeah, uh, and in terms of managers, they obviously post Koeman, they've gone for two in a row of a very similar blueprint, believing that would work and that hasn't worked. Again, this is just because it's the theory of of somebody who's driving it. Now, I'm sure all these things have gone past the the other members of the board. Of course they have. It's not as if they've just said, you just do it, we won't even talk to you about it. But I just think maybe it's unwise to, to have such an imbalance of of one person having so much power and so much input over the most important area of the football club. I I suppose the one concern now as a fan is Les Reed, like him or loathe him, we we are now in a position where we are struggling as a football club on the pitch. The only person at that sort of upper echelons of the club that has football knowledge that isn't a number cruncher, isn't a member of the Chinese ownership family, isn't Katerina Lieber, isn't Ralph Kruger, the one person that had the footballing knowledge, we have now fired. We will come on to the Ralph Kruger interview in a minute and talk about where he mentions it may take a while to find the right replacement. Surely, as a snowball effect, that could cause even more issues on the pitch in terms of footballing direction. Well, that's what I mean by the timing being straight. Yep. in the middle of a season you know like this and a difficult season as well I mean they got to the point where perhaps they felt something's got to be done and we've got to be seen to do something as much as anything else we can't be seen to just allow this to continue as the status quo ad infinitum without any um, recourse to actually being seen to do anything and so I, I guess that was the motivation to to do it at that point. But yeah, I mean, to me, it leaves them somewhat rudderless, to be mm. honest, because Ralph was honest and said, obviously, I'm going to make the big decisions now, um, which is fine because, I, I mean, the majority of football clubs are run by chairmen and people like that who don't have a football background, really, or, or great footballing knowledge. So Ralph certainly wouldn't be alone in being a chairman that's in that position. But yeah, I, I I totally agree. There's a transfer window coming up very soon, a very you know potentially an important one. We're a pivotal time of the season. The manager is under a massive amount of pressure. Yeah. And if things continue to go badly, a decision will have to be made as to whether 
he continues or not? And if not, who comes in? Um, and if he does continue, whether you know anything needs to change around and about him to, to help him, who is making those decisions, who is qualified to make those decisions? Difficult. It's difficult. That looks like a void to me. So we've spoken about the manager, Adam. Ross Wilson, head of recruitment at Saints, reports into, or did report into Les Reed, I believe. One of the big concerns we've had and issues we've spoken about previously is the recruitment of players over the last 18, 24 months since Paul Mitchell left the club. S. Morgs Board 01 asked the question, the obvious one is how has Ross Wilson survived? If recruitment was a big part of the issue for Les going, then it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think that's a fair question. Surely he is someone that probably will be sweating, albeit that they've kept hold of him for the moment. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. I think he probably probably will be. I, I mean, well, as I alluded to you, uh, or mentioned earlier, you've got a good couple of hundred staff on the football side of things down at, at St Mary's uh, or Staplewood mainly. And they obviously reported in to first and foremost uh, Les, but but Ross on a more day to day basis. Now, I think if you'd have suddenly gone, right, we've taken out Les Reed, we've taken out Martin Hunter, we've taken out Ross Wilson. Yep. I think then you've got such a void literally in the day to day running of the football club and the important bits of the football side of things that you can't you can't just go wrecking with a wrecking ball and take out absolutely everybody. And so. Uh, I think that for some form of continuity at this point in time, Ross Wilson stays and, you know, can kind of make sure that everything is still being run on a day to day basis. You know, whatever it is, the people who need to report into him, the forms that need signing, that still functions as a thing in the business. Now, what his long term future is, obviously, will, will likely depend on what this review from Ralph satellite group uh, reports back and who they ultimately appoint in probably some form of director of football, vice chairman of football, whatever it is type of role, who is going to clearly then want to just make their own decisions on what people they want in those key roles. So I think Ross Wilson stays for now, but I guess all those kind of positions, especially the senior positions, are going to be up for review the moment that somebody else comes in kind of in a position like Les was. Just briefly on Martin Hunter then, I wasn't necessarily going to bring him up, but as you've uh, mentioned his name quite rightly, he left on the same day as Les Reed. The academy has kind of gone downhill, certainly in terms of players through the pathway into the first team the last couple of years, almost coinciding with the recruitment plan, really. So were you surprised that he was part of the shake-up, or do you think that's also been on the cards for a little while from any knowledge you have? Um, I was surprised actually in in the first instance that uh, that that he went, but he did he was very much kind of came in as Les's pick, um, and as you rightly said, obviously part of the problem yes has been recruitment, and perhaps we they, as you just discussed, Ross Wilson could have been thrown under the bus with that, but obviously another part of the problem has been the academy that had a lot of money spent on it and has just not produced enough players for the first team and of first team quality, and when we uh, look at everything combined with Saints and some of the problems that they've got. That that lack of players uh, coming through is obviously a factor and a contributing factor. And I guess he kind of pays the price for that and also for perhaps being seen as, as Les's man, really, uh, in terms of putting Les's structure in place. And I guess they felt that maybe they're going to need a clean sweep on that front to have another look at the academy because uh, what Les has been there eight years and, and really... All right, we, we talked about his input and, and where it was under Cortese, but that's very much when we're talking about the first team with the academy. I'm guessing really from what I've heard that he was, and then later with Hunter, was obviously running things from day one. So we're eight years down the line now. So it's fair to start to judge 
their output now. Yeah. Um, you can't really judge it um, probably uh, until a few years ago. Um, and their output, unfortunately, is just not seeing players that have come in from a young age going through the academy system. The only ones younger players have got near the first team are mainly players that they've bought. And don't get me wrong, that's still part of the grand scheme of things. But, you know, we're seeing you know, Jack Stevens has come in. He was bought. Michael Oberfemi's coming in now. He was bought. But there's not many that are coming through the, the pathway, as it were. And obviously, that's a problem, especially when the club are investing a lot of money into it. I thought Jack Stevens was one of our own, but there we go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I know in true Saints fashion, and I know Kruger alluded to this, um, nothing's going to happen particularly quickly because it never does down at St Mary's. But I'm reluctant to ask what you believe the club want, Adam, because I, I think they've made it quite clear in the Kruger interview that they need to do some analysis and whatever Greeps, you know, Ralph decides he wants to sit on alongside all the other millions of Greeps and agendas and things he's doing. Um, what do you think they need in terms of Les Reed's replacement? Do you think they need someone young and up and coming that maybe has um, can embrace more modern football? Do you think someone who's been there and done it, hypothetically an Arsene Wenger type figure who's got that international experience that could come in and uh, oversee things at that level? What What do you think Saints really need to get themselves going again? Well, if I'm being completely honest, cards on the table, I'm not sure it's just one person who can come in and sort all this out because I think some of the problems are, are deeper seated than than just uh, one man coming in. And I think I would like to see Saints probably be a bit more young and exciting um, in, in that respect. Obviously, if you could get somebody, I mean, with with incredible experience like a like a Wenger, obviously, then that's that's very appealing. But the chances of getting somebody of that ilk, are, you know, yeah, next totally. to none, I would suggest. So I would think that just somebody to come in and, and give it a, a fresh perspective, a fresh impetus um, to shake things up a little bit, to change things up, to change sort of the philosophy of the way that things are being done. I think we're, we're now in that position where we're finding the status quo of what's been there isn't working and it feels like things are only getting slowly ever so slowly uh worse but they are getting worse bit by bit by bit but i think the club is wise to try and take a step back it's just a difficult time to take a step back and reflect because it's in the middle of a season where things aren't going very well the thing that concerns me probably is that i think that a lot of that has to come from the very very top mm. and given the complete silence from the very very top you know we we still don't know what's going on there I, I wonder how much is going to change really or how much can change or you know one person how much change could they affect then i think there needs to be some more fundamental change in in terms of direction It'll be interesting. I know quite a few Saints fans jumped on the uh, Mark Devlin, chief executive of Brentford, leaving the, the club earlier this week. He's going to leave at the end of the year. Someone who's obviously helped Brentford grow and develop players and, uh, you know, certainly maybe more uh, a young and up and coming sort of uh, executive. So it'll be interesting to see if anything happens with that. Just finally on Les Reed then, Adam, before we talk about Ralph. It's been mentioned a lot by Saints fans about the sort of decline within his role and he's been maybe much maligned the last couple of years. But I'm personally positive about the fact that he's moved on and I guess, you know, we certainly needed a, a change of strategy in that department but how important is it we acknowledge some of the work that he has done over that eight-year period you know he was responsible for sourcing Pochettino I know Cortese took a lot of the credit but I think people in and around the club know that it was Les Reed that initially um, sourced Pochettino and uh, suggested they have a look at him he was part of the hiring team that brought in Ronald Koeman that led to our best ever Premier League finish so I know he has taken a lot of hits the last couple of years but it's important to remember some of the good work yeah, I mean, perspective and balance is is very important in all these things. I mean, he's not 
Um, yes, he goes at a time when, you know, in true, true football fashion, you go often when your stock is lowest, not when your stock is highest. That is true now, but he he has done some very good things. And I think particularly the Kuman era, uh, effectively that appointment really was a was a huge appointment. And also they got a lot of signings right now. Kuman obviously had a had an input, had probably a greater input. And obviously th- that first season he needed to because there was such a huge turnover in the playing staff that first season that they kind of needed him to, to have that input. That was important. And, and also I think a lot of the unseen things behind the scenes as well i mean the processes and protocols and things that have been put into place lest we forget as well um he's really obviously cortese's helped start it but he's really driven the training ground um improvements and they are uh, potentially a huge future legacy for the football club The, the training ground is fantastic and he's really driven that and driven on the phases uh continued development for that likewise uh, all right, there might be a change in, in a approach, but obviously the things have been put in place that the academy should be able to work and function and produce players as yep. well. And he's also fought and battled to ensure the funding for that um, has been in place as well. So there are there are plenty of positive things he's done and plenty of good things he's done, uh, as well as the headline grabbing things, which are the first team sliding and some pretty questionable recent transfer policy of the last couple of years. So if that wasn't a busy enough day then, Adam, I assume at some point on Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, you get a message to say, hey, fancy having a chat with Ralph tomorrow. And you're in the next day doing a big interview on Friday. Another occasion, I thought, where it seemed you asked some really, really constructive and uh, interesting questions, but maybe you come away with more questions than answers half the time when you seem to speak to Ralph. Yes, I, sometimes. I, to be honest with you, I thought he was a bit better this time um, than, he, than, you know, a bit more... Less worse. Uh, <laughs> maybe, but he was definitely... I, I think some of his answers were, were quite honest. It took two or three goes with a few questions to kind of get an answer, really, and then kind of get this thing with Ralph where he kind of answers the question but then goes on to talk for quite a long time about something that's that's only vaguely related to the question Um, so well so the answer just gets a little bit lost doesn't it sometimes I think that's part of the problem with the way he does it but I did think he was fairly honest I mean to basically say they're not really looking at they haven't really got the money to sign anybody in January to to confirm that you know, at this point in time, there's not any more money coming into the club from Mr. Gao, and obviously we, you know, I managed to pick him up because he kept mentioning the ownership board and, and asked him what, you know, what, what is this ownership board you speak of? We haven't heard of this before, <laughs> and to get him to talk about that a bit, as well as obviously all the stuff around Les and. And even though I was confused by a bit confused by the timing of the the read thing, and I don't think it was really very well explained um, to at least address that in some way. I thought we did address the questions. um, But, yeah, I I think you do come away with kind of uh, more questions than answers. But I do feel um, on this occasion, I give I do give him a bit of credit because he didn't necessarily have to have come out and spoken. Uh, really, I don't think. I think he probably could have just kept his head down a little bit um, after doing this. But, you know, he thought it was an important time to front up and that he had to be seen to be taking the lead and had to be seen to be leading the club, given, as we've talked about, potentially big decisions that are coming up that he is going to have to make himself. But, yeah. but then, I, mean, that's, then... I mean, that's an interesting point. And I, I, I think, you're, you know, it's an interesting point I was going to ask you about because we get sacked on the Thursday we've got a, such a massive game against Watford on Saturday bearing in mind the situation we are in the league you think back to early in the year he did the pre-Palace um, 
Crystal Palace game at home. He decided to do another big interview with you there. He gave Pellegrino's backing, etc. They lost that game 2-1. So, I mean, I suppose I thought, did he really need to do it the day before such a big game and I assume come out and try and clear the air to a certain extent? Or could he have done it Monday in the middle of an international break when there wasn't going to be such a reaction maybe from fans and sort of any enthusiasm that fans had about Reed going and suddenly being tempered with all this indecision from Ralph? I think he needed to do it to coincide with the announcement. I guess the only thing that I, I remain unsure of is to why that announcement couldn't have waited until after the international, uh, into the international break. Yep, good point. Um, they could have waited till after Watford and done it early the start of the next week. Now, there's probably something behind the reason for that timing. Um, I'm sure that it had been thought through. I can't say that I know what that is because I don't, but, um, I think it was important that he came and he actually did something given the feeling that though people would be pleased Reed when the fact that he's not immediately being replaced obviously raises an awful lot of questions um, and, and a potential vacuum of, of power to a certain extent on the football side. I do think it was important he did something um, and he did it to coincide with that, to not let it fester too much. And I guess from his point of view as well, he's friends with Les Reed. You know, they've known each other and worked alongside each other for a number of years and they're friends. So I guess as well, he probably wanted to be able to sort of felt it was only right that he kind of paid a bit of tribute to him as well. And I suspect that was probably part of the motivation, too. And it's probably a good time for him to do it, because if he does have to make some big decisions and with January coming up, he's he's kind of he's come out. He's lanced the boil, as it were, now. Mm. So he can probably keep his head down for quite a long time now. It's just if he wants to. I actually got myself a beer, Adam, and went through the whole thing with you. It's a bit like watching Saints. I tend to find that uh, Ralph's uh, interviews are a bit more interesting if you're drinking the same as when you watch Saints play. They tend, the, more, the more you drink, Adam, the better they seem to play. But you summed it up quite nicely in your tweets on Friday afternoon after the interview. You said that uh, the main points of the interview had been timing of read decision, Saints to reevaluate structure before seeking replacement. In interim, Kruger will make decision on Hughes if they require. Currently, no plans to spend in January. Mr. Gow not planning to invest further at this stage and talking about the ownership board one of the things um, we spoke briefly earlier about Mark Hughes and transfers Ralph sort of seemed to come out and indicate that they weren't going to um, really do much in the January window he did sort of cover himself by saying it would depend if there was a bad run of results or particular injuries and that sort of thing but it, it almost feels already that there's this sort of breakdown in strategy where Hughes is sort of indicating that he will have potentially more of a of a say in transfers and you know he seemed to sort of imply that January was coming at just the right time and then you got Kruger sort of outlining that it's unlikely they'll spend anything at the moment so it almost feels as we mentioned earlier in the pod that there's sort of not everyone in the club is working to the same strategy at the moment is that fair? I genuinely don't know what what's going on with that and uh, you often get managers talking about um, situations towards transfer windows which is more trying to manoeuvre stuff the way they want it rather than actually perhaps talking about what they think is the reality of the situation I don't know if that's what's going on or whether there's just a bit of miscommunication somewhere I mean I don't foresee there being a lot of business by the sounds of it in January um, I, I'd already been led to believe that there was very little money left to spend in January after the summer signings and so I, I don't really see that that's probably going to be any different I mean maybe they could get in one or two or perhaps it'll be what Hughes means is he'll have a bit more freedom to sell as well as buy if that makes sense so maybe he he's got his eye on trying to ship a few out and bring a couple in actually wheel and deal so the cost deficit is negligible to Saints but he gets in a couple more players that he wants obviously the flip side of that is that 
the crown jewels have all been sold and, and it's not as if they're in a position where they can flog players for huge money at the moment because they haven't got many players that people would want to pay huge money for, I'd suggest. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. There's not much left to sell, really, is there? Well, no, not really. But Not for much value, anyway. No, but I guess the squad is so bloated now. There are quite a few players there that, that are decent enough players. They're not going to get huge fees, but you get some money for them. They're just not even getting on the bench, are they? Nowhere no. near. So people who are fifth, sixth choice, whatever. Well, actually... If you you could probably stand to lose a few of those and not even notice they'd gone really. So um, if you could get rid of a few of those and their combined fee and salary equaled one really good player that Hughes wanted, maybe he's going to get a bit more freedom to kind of do things that way uh, a little bit. Perhaps that's what he means. I don't I don't really know. But um, as it stands, just in terms of keeping the squad intact and then adding to it, I don't I don't think there's going to be a lot doing. One of the lines that I wanted to draw your attention to, Adam, because I think many Saints fans, we know we know that Ralph loves to, to use word lingo. I think he must have a, I reckon him and the team must have some form of bingo game going on in the background when he's speaking to you guys. But there is an opportunity now, what I call a space, and we will move on into that space and make it an opportunity. In layman's terms, Adam, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I, to be honest, I have a tiny bit of sympathy with Ralph because I know this one's been picked up a few times and uh, it kind of does make sense, but it's a bit of a odd use of speech. But I think that the thing is with, with Ralph is obviously he does uh, give very full answers to questions. And I think if you typed up our audio of this this discussion that we're having now – Probably some of what we've said, well, it might not make sense if you're listening to it, but probably it wouldn't make sense if it was written down. Um, and I think that that's part of the problem is that I'm actually trying to do Ralph in a kind of a transcript format for, for online. And part of the, the thinking behind that really is to give a the depth of his answers, because, again, you know, I feel like as, as the paper, local paper in there, we should be reporting kind of everything he says, because it's quite important and not just you know picking and being selective and using our own editorial judgment to yep. hack off a load of what he says. We don't get many chances to speak to the Saints hierarchy. So I think it's right that we give them that platform whereby they can connect much more directly with the fans through us and through independent questioning than they can in any other way or, or they will be able to in any other way. Uh, and so I don't think it's for me to to really uh, on, online where we kind of have unlimited space, unlike in a newspaper where we're obviously limited by the number of pages we've got. To I, I don't like the idea of hacking back Ralph's words. So I do quote him more or less as he speaks. Uh, but obviously the slight flip side of that is every so often, if there's something like that, that perhaps it makes sense in the way he's talking. But when you actually read it um, on paper, you sort of think, well, that's a bit odd. Then uh, it kind of it seems like it's highlighted even more. Um, but especially when obviously Ralph does use quite a lot of uh, sort of buzzwords and sort of management type speak it, it sort of can seem even worse I think yeah it sort of leads me on to a question um, Aidan Osman got in touch Aidan thanks for dropping us a question he he sort of spoke about um, the restructure and um, you know alluded to what you said really around why wasn't the decision made in the summer but I think the other thing that Aidan sort of draws attention to and it was I think for many of us a bit concerning as well I'm not going to read the entire interview Adam but one of the other paraphrases was from Ralph 
when you look at the spaces that we have now, who and how that will end up looking, I can't tell you today. This is a process that has just begun this week. I'm putting the team together right now and reaching out to people that I trust, and we will keep you posted and communicate with our fan base as this process goes on. I have to be honest, I'm not sure how it's going to end or the job description of the people we then go out and search for, but the priority is the competitiveness that is necessary for the Premier League and the continued teaching and development of academy players. I guess my concern as a fan, Adam, is we've already fired Les Reed. We don't seem to know where we're going or who we're going to employ. Um, how long is it going to take? What are we going to end up with? This is part of the, the ownership team. This is the guy that is effectively running our football club. He doesn't seem to know where we're going and or what we're looking for. Should we be worried? Well, I think that's for everybody to make their own minds up. I don't think okay. that's for me yes, to, I'm worried. to say. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Fair enough. Um I think it's at the end of the day, uncertainty in life is always concerning and, and troubling for most people. Most people struggle to live with uncertainty, don't they? Um, and I guess that that is, you know, we are in an uncertain time with Saints, really. I think part of the issue when you hear of this new ownership board and, and you look at the makeup of that board is what are their qualifications to make this, this these, some of these decisions other than it's theirs to be able to make them because actually the majority of them are the people who own the football clubs. So they can mm. do whatever they want, in, in fact. But it's a difficult time. Um, and obviously it's not helped by the fact that, that, that this would be uncertainty anyway. But it feels worse when you're in this period where things are actually going bad for the first team as well. Yep. Um, it, it's necessary. I still think, as I said before, I don't really fully understand uh, why this couldn't have been done in the summer. And why they couldn't have taken a you know done this at the end of the season and taken a couple of months over the summer yep. to have made uh, this decision, especially as it seemed such a done deal that they were going to give the job to Hughes regardless, would be to give the job to Hughes so at least the first team was settled as it were, mm. and then allow period where there weren't any games, there was no chance of things going badly wrong to actually get somebody in and uh, you know, have this review and look at structures of other clubs, which are, all of which I think is is perfectly sensible, yeah. um, perfectly admirable to do. And I think it's the right thing for Saints to do. They're making decisions for hopefully a very long term now, so they need to get these right. Um, and so you can't rush those. The problem is that they're operating during the season, which is a very short termism all the time, um, mm. which is the difficulty they've got. So the truth is, you come back to the same point that I make several times. Actually, these people, you know, Mr. Gao, um, particularly, but obviously Nelly, his daughter, and Katerina, between them, they own the club. And, and really, anybody else can be as concerned as they want, but they're going to do whatever they like because it's their business. Just before we speak about the, the Gals, just to finish off the, the Ralph section, I just want to clarify my understanding so I'm 100% clear on this. So Ralph tells you in his interview that he's part of the ownership board, which I think we all know. Is that correct? Yes. He then says it was the ownership board's request that Reed go and that that decision was his to execute. So I'm just trying to clarify. He almost makes it sound like it was the ownership board that asked him to go and sat Reed, but he would have been part of that ownership board that made the decision, right? Yeah. Good. Okay. I was just trying to clarify. Yep. Yeah, it must have been part of his decision as well. Um, so it wasn't he... like it was forced on him. He was part of the group that collectively decided Reed had to go, but he was the one that needed to go and fire him. That was my understanding of, of what he said, um, because he also talked about the, the ownership board a bit later on and was talking about how they've, they've always come to unanimous decisions. So therefore, um, assuming that this wasn't that he hadn't admitted to say that this wasn't a unanimous decision, then um, presumably he had agreed 
that this was the right way to go. Okay, excellent. All right. And then just finally on the gals, he mentions to you that the gals don't plan to invest any more money at the moment. To my understanding, they've only invested the 210 million or whatever it was to buy the club because all the player transfers have been through the money from the, the likes of the Van Dyke sale and things like that. Is that correct? Yes. So they've not actually invested anything other than buying the club. So um, interesting because we've got two questions. One is from Jason Dickey. One is from uh, at 1185, the art of. And they kind of allude to the same sort of thing, but in two different ways. So starting with at 1885, the art of, how much of a hindrance to the club do you guys feel Mr. Gow's silence is causing? A man who, after all, failed the proper owner's test first time around. Also, do you feel Cat was lied to about his investment intentions and next level, etc.? Or did she not really care? She just wanted as much money as possible. And the sort of opposite question of that is, do you think as fans from Jason Dickey that we tend to undervalue the importance of Gow reinvesting everything back into the club and not pulling it out? As fans, we want the owner to spend. But should we be grateful that our owner reinvests profits? Seems like Kruger thinks so. Do you want me to have a go at these first, or do you want to go? <laughs> uh, no, I'd probably prefer you do, actually. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So I understand the justification behind him not speaking. I, I get it. I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. That's that's my personal opinion. I understand. And you've made that clear that, for a while. Yeah. Like and many I, of us. I, I think it would be very beneficial if he did a couple of interviews and, and actually made clear what he wants in regards to the investment um the the sort of nature of the question i asked was was because um when i spoke to ralph not long after gal had had uh bought his 80 percent share in the club he he didn't because he's never to be fair there's never been a promise of of investment into the team but there was talk of infrastructure investment from from gal and uh, the, the question was kind of around the fact that we haven't seen any of that materialise. So, and then at the fans forum on BBC Solent, um, obviously Ralph had, had sort of said, "Well, actually, you know, Mr. Gow's made his investment. He bought the club. That is his investment. He has invested." Mm. Um, so my was to clarify. My point was to clarify. It's mixed messages, isn't it? Well, I don't think it is mixed anymore. I think now, because um, I think he clarified it um, to answer my question, was as it stands, yes, that is the investment, but. Then this flip side, as uh, the the question pointed out, Gao is allowing Saints to run as a self-sustaining business, therefore not asking to take out a cut of money or profits, which he could technically do because it's his business. So yeah, I mean, in terms of, of Katerina Lipe, I mean, I've got, I've, you know, was she lied to, or I've got absolutely no idea whatsoever. And a lot of people say to me, oh, why, why don't you ask Ralph about? You know, why Gal lied about investment and why has Katerina done this, that and the other? The answer is Ralph couldn't tell you. There's no point in asking questions that you can't get an answer to. Ralph can't tell you. The only people who could tell you whether Gal has broken any promises or whether Katerina cared who she was sending it to or just cared more about getting, you know, loads and loads of money for herself. The only people who could tell you that are those people involved. And we have no access to speak to Gal and we have no access to speak to Katerina Lieber. Neither of them have ever done, as far as I'm aware, a single press interview mm. um, and certainly not uh, while they've been connected with Southampton Football Club. And only they will really know the answers behind that. Um, but Southampton Football Club, the point I would make is that they should be able to run as a self-sustaining business that's that's how it should be that's that's not a bad thing that they can stand on their own two feet and not have to go cap in hand to some rich foreigner every couple of months to ask for a for a you know a top up of a loan all the time that's actually a good thing 
And I don't think necessarily if Mr. Gao actually came out and explained his reasoning behind the way the club's being run, that, that actually it wouldn't be accepted by the majority of fans. Because I actually think it's a sensible way to run a club and it probably would be. But the problem is when you don't know what his end game is at the end of all this um, or where he's going with it all, then naturally everybody's going to be suspicious. It's just That's just human nature. I think the thing is, and I made this point to a podcast I was on last week, is it's almost 10 years ago since we almost went bust. Adam, I know you're slightly less um, empathetic about the fact that that may have happened because I think there probably would have been a buyer of uh, one way or another. But, um, you know, as, as a fan, you want the club to be as good as it can on the pitch. You think to the yourselves, well, they're not investing as much as we want in players. There's no stars. There's no game changers. We are 17th, 18th in the Premier League for a reason. However, 10 years ago, we almost went out of business. So we have a football club to support. It's in the Premier League. How, how long it will stay there, we don't know. But you have to understand that it is a business and they are trying to be sustainable. And the last thing we would want is to do a Leeds United, for example. And this was the example I gave to that podcast. They were in the Champions League. They blew a load of money on it, trying to push themselves forward, paid the, the price for it, ended up tumbling down into the Championship. They've never got out of the Championship since. So I think we do have to appreciate there is a fine line between running a really sustainable business and running a successful football club. I think the frustration for fans at the moment, Adam, is I think we would like to be sustainable. That's fine, but at least be more competitive on the pitch. It's not about winning the league. It's about you know winning more than two, three, four games a season. Thanks for listening to the podcast episode 50. Hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, I also hope that we've covered off the points that you want. Um, Adam's very lucky to get the chance to, I say lucky in inverted commas, Adam, lucky to get the chance to speak to the likes of Ralph Kruger. So we do try to make sure that we get as much information that he can share across to you. So I hope that it's covered off the information that you would have wanted. Uh, thanks also to Will and Saints Archive and not forgetting, of course, saintsworld.co.uk and happy hot tubs. The good news, as I mentioned right at the start, is that there's another international break now. So uh, I'm positively excited about that Adam you got any plans for the international break oh it's definitely a break after this week <laughs> yeah and then the long <laughs> run to needed. Christmas yeah exactly so uh, yeah but at least you most of it well and you're still ticking off the days till you go and see Claude again I bet you are yeah well rescheduled Claude obviously yeah, I know well at least it's given you a bit longer to look forward to it hasn't it so uh, yeah it's it's like it's like getting to like halfway through your advent calendar and somebody's <laughs> thrown it away and you have to start again though <laughs> Absolutely. So good stuff. All right. Well, we'll be back sort of circa Fulham. Uh, until then, keep marching in. And as we said earlier, when it comes to far more important things in life, lest we forget. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be fine. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.